Good evening, everyone. This week, we'll talk about the lungs and the history of operating on them. The history of modern lung surgery starts up in the 19th century. As we've touched on in the past, tuberculosis has been a scourge of humanity for ages, and the pulmonary form is the most common. Considering how deadly tuberculosis is, it's rather surprising we didn't see some long-shot attempts at surgical interventions. But we did not. In 1882, the Italian doctor Carlo Fornanini discusses artificial pneumothorax, which is where the surgeon adds gas into the chest. The extra pressure on the outside of the lung can cause collapse, which is normally bad. However, in this instance, it can provide the lung with a period of rest, which can be useful in treating tuberculosis. He first tried it out in 1888. Almost simultaneously, in 1885, some British physicians attempted the procedure as well, but the patient died a few days later. Not many of these were done before World War I, and Fornanini himself did less than 100 over about two decades, because as it turns out, messing with the lungs, which you need to breathe, is pretty dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Another method of resting the lung, though, is by destroying the nerve attached to the diaphragm known as the phrenic nerve. The diaphragm is the muscle that contracts in order to help you push air in and out of your lungs. And so cutting the phrenic nerve would prevent the diaphragm from moving, allowing the lungs to rest. Uh, but, you know, permanently, which is not great. Later physicians advocated instead just crushing the nerve, which I guess is better than cutting them. Crushing would allow a period of rest while the nerve was damaged, but the nerve could still recover and take up its function again later on. Not recommended, though, and we thankfully don't do phrenic crushes anymore, which is what they used to call them. Next up, instead of adding into the lung cavity, we figured out the drainage of empyema, a collection of pus contained in a cavity, especially between the lung and chest wall. In 1852, Henry Ingersoll Bowditch pointed out it was necessary to make an incision in the chest to remove said pus. He made a small stab incision, probably trying to err on the side of caution, which is great, but also only allowing for slight drainage because the hole was too small. He did, however, see no deaths in performing the operation 270 times, so I guess his carefulness paid off. Later techniques introduced a tube through the chest wall to be able to suck the pus out. However, inserting such a tube through a tiny stab wound will still get blocked by pus, and so in 1879, J.A. Estlander suggested that a portion of rib should be removed to make a bigger opening. Results were good, and the technique spread. In England, the procedure is especially associated with William Arbuthnot Lane, who you may remember as a pioneer of plastic surgery. He also used rib removal for the drainage of pus in the chest cavity frequently, and was quite successful. You'll notice, though, that so far we haven't actually touched the lungs yet, just kind of hovered around them. That's about to change, though. I don't have clear records, but it's almost certain that military surgeons attempted to close wounds to the lungs at some point early on. More concrete cases start in the 19th century. For example, William Mossowin, the guy who we've mentioned for figuring out bone grafts, removed part of a knife blade from the lung of a 12-year-old boy. Not sure who stabbed a 12-year-old boy, but he lived because the surgery was successful. The most simple planned operation, though, is a removal of diseased lung tissue. It's not clear when the first attempt to remove part of the lung was, but for sure in 1884, a German surgeon named Bloch tried to remove the section of a lung from a patient supposedly suffering from tuberculosis. 
She unfortunately died on the operating table, and it was shown that the original diagnosis was incorrect. Block was apparently so distraught that he committed suicide, all very tragic. But luckily, things get better. The first successful removal of diseased lung tissue I have is from 1891, performed by a Theodore Touffier of Paris. The operation spread rapidly at that point, even independently being performed in other countries, often to remove heavily tuberculosis-infected lung tissue. Mossowin actually makes another cameo here, removing the vast majority of an extremely infected lung. His patient went on to live a healthy life for decades to come. That unfortunately was not always the case. Keep in mind we're still early on in lung surgery as a whole, and many of these surgeries were considered experimental and were very dangerous. We're also still in the era of early or non-existent anesthesia, and as I'm sure you can imagine, operations on the lungs without anesthesia are not very pleasant. The last big milestone in terms of surgical procedures actually happens pretty early on, back in 1910. We have discussed the partial removal of lung tissue, but have yet to discuss the complete removal of a whole lung. The first time was performed by Hermann Kummel, who removed the lung of a patient suffering from lung cancer, and in the process actually set two milestones. The first removal of a whole lung, and the first operation on a lung for cancer. Again, before this, most treatments of the lung was for tuberculosis, and cancer was relatively rare. Unfortunately, his patient died, but plenty more attempts were made afterwards, with much better successes as technology advanced. After World War I, anesthetic technology sufficiently caught up to enable safer procedures. One of the biggest issues was that the vast majority of anesthetics were given by a mask over the nose and mouth, or by a lead tube tucked into the corner of the mouth. These required the patient to be able to inhale the agent, which means that operations on the head, mouth, throat, nose, and neck had additional complications. Anesthesia causes the muscles to relax, including the tongue, which can actually block the throat and cause suffocation. Which means, yes, that patients can literally choke on their own tongue. In order to avoid such problems, a few surgeons performed early tracheotomies, where they cut a small hole through the trachea on the neck, and then insert a tube to administer anesthesia through that. This would guarantee that a patient could breathe, even if the tongue obstructed the throat, but this also meant that you had to put a hole in the patient's neck, and it carried a risk of pneumonia, neither of which are very nice. In 1878, Masowin, still ever the star, came up with the idea of passing a tube through the mouth, you know, that hole in the neck that we already have. This would retain the same benefits, but drop a lot of the drawbacks. He used tubes made of silver or gum elastic, which could be bent into a shape and then would stay that way. He first tested out what we now call intubation, on a patient undergoing tongue surgery. He had no good way of knowing if the practice was safe, and so he repeated the intubation several times on his unfortunate patient, by sense of touch alone, which was probably incredibly uncomfortable, considering the patient was not yet anesthetized, and even had to hold the tube while they were being put under. However, besides the occasional cough, the patient was able to deal with it, and the operation went successfully. Mossowin's second try at intubation yielded a new innovation, but this one came from the patient. Similarly, this patient was intubated and kept the tube in place for about 15 minutes. When they began anesthetizing the patient, he got up, took out the tube, handed it back to the surgeon, and pointed out that they could knock him out first and then introduce the tube, saving him a whole lot of discomfort, which is what we do today. Intubation these days is actually handled by anesthesiologists, and not by surgeons. 
Following Masuin's discoveries, the practice of intubation spread quickly. From there, we added on a bellows attachment invented by a GE Fell, which created an early apparatus for artificial respiration. It now became possible to reinflate a lung that had collapsed due to opening the chest. Fell's bellows could only blow air with ether or chloroform, though, and so Frederick Hewitt designed the first nitrous oxide and oxygen dispenser. The gases were stored in pressurized containers, far too much pressure to safely expose lungs to. And so Hewitt's device used valves to limit the pressure, creating the first breathing system completely cut off from the ambient air. The big important advance, though, came in 1933 with the gas cyclopropane. The gas does not irritate the lungs and can produce deep anesthesia when mixed with oxygen. It came into regular use because of the lack of irritation, but it also causes breathing to slow down significantly, even to the point of causing oxygen deprivation. In 1941, M.D. Noseworthy noticed that it, you could fix this by squeezing the breathing bag of the anesthetic apparatus with your hand, essentially just pushing a little bit of air in and out of the lungs. This seemingly small discovery is actually the important part here. Noseworthy began to use this during any chest surgery because it gave him control over the patient's lung movement. It was to lay the foundation for the next generation of ventilators, But first, in 1942, H.R. Griffith and G.E. Johnson introduced curare, which is the first neuromuscular blocker put into common use. If you can believe it, it was originally derived from an extremely deadly South American arrow poison. When used correctly, and not as a poison, it causes muscle relaxation or even complete paralysis. Cyclopropane caused depressed breathing, but curare's active ingredient could stop it completely giving the anesthetist truly complete control over lung movements. Now, that would be kind of annoying if the anesthesiologist was 100% responsible for the patient's breathing and had to manually squeeze a bag to do it, but there is a better way. Have a machine take over. Now, ventilators were not particularly new technology at this time. The first iron lungs showed up in 1876, which is pretty dang old. These devices modified the air pressure around the patient's body in a chamber, which essentially made them breathe in and out. Iron lungs are very annoying, though, because they cover the entire body. And if you are trying to take care of a patient, sometimes you need to get to their body. From iron lungs, machines meant for individual use, we advanced to ventilator rooms, which were giant rooms that functioned essentially like a gigantic iron lung. The patients lay down with their heads sticking out from the room, while nurses could work inside the room on the patient's body must have been a very weird experience. From there, we started using squeeze bags, because it yielded better results for patients than the iron lungs did. As we mentioned, this is annoying, and of course, labor-intensive. At the end of the polio epidemic in the 1950s, it was estimated that 1,500 medical students provided manual ventilation on such squeeze bags for 165,000 hours, which is a whole lot of time being spent just squeezing bags during operations. Luckily, these days, we have actual machines that essentially squeeze the bag for us, instead of an army of poor medical students doing it. These essentially have the same function, but have become more and more advanced over time, further further reducing the chances of injury. Earlier models of mechanical ventilators often caused injury, for example, by applying too much pressure to the lungs. But proper ventilation is vital to enabling safer and better lung surgery, and so with these new technologies, lung surgery has never been safer. 
Even though the basic operations have been around for about a century, the improvement in related technologies still led to many, many benefits. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll talk about our second-to-last specialty history, with the history of cardiac surgery. Like usual, thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, Muse Open for our music, and especially you for listening. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, or reach out via the links in the show notes.